Good morning. That crowd you just heard in the hallway was all the little ones getting ready for the Christmas play. And I really want to encourage you, Sal, Pastor Sal just shared, uh, great opportunity. You, you can get just about anyone to show up on a Sunday to watch little kids. And uh, what a great opportunity because also after that presentation, there'll be a presentation of the gospel. I'm certainly learning how important it is as I get older to share the gospel with all those that we can, all those that we love, all those that we know, uh, because we, we just don't know how much more time we have or they have. And so absolutely essential to get that message to their hearts. From there, the Holy Spirit can touch the heart of a person, change their heart, turn their heart from darkness to light. And we, we count on that. We believe that truth in our hearts, and we know it by faith. Amen? It's so nice to see so many people here on time. I think the fallback change of the clock might have had something to do with it. I've often thought that when they change the clock an hour back and people don't know it, then they come to church like 45 minutes early. Do the math. And then you've got people, of course, and I didn't see anyone today. I'm not taking names. Not yet. But I, did, I, I don't think, it's a, too many people come in like 15 minutes late, but what a great opportunity we have with the clock change to commit ourselves to being here the moment worship begins. Listen, I understand, hey, I get here an hour before you guys, most of you, but I, and some of the guys are here a half hour before me. I just want to encourage you, not in a guilt kind of a, you know, Sicilian guilt kind of way or anything like that, like we know who you are and we're taking names or anything, but... But I just, I just sort of want to remind you that we send a message. I was driving past a little church today. My wife and I were heading out of town. And it's actually, uh, it used to be a Lutheran church. It's not that little. It's actually a pretty good-sized church. But um, it used to be a Lutheran church. It was bought by a very traditional Catholic congregation. They say right on the sign, traditional mass in Latin. Because, yeah, it's pretty traditional, right? When I was a kid, that might have happened. That doesn't happen all that often. They're actually one of two churches that sued the state of New Jersey. Actually, one was a church, one was a synagogue, that that sued the state of New Jersey over the COVID restrictions on worship. And uh, one of those two. And so obviously a very committed fellowship, right? Their church parking lot is packed. There is simply no room. At 7.55 this morning, I'm driving past that building. They must have a 7.30 or a 7 o'clock service, probably 7.30. So those of you guys who think 9 o'clock is early, hey. 7.55, no place to park, really impressed me. And I, and I thought, you know, I'm going to share a little of that because it's just an encouragement to know. Now, listen, I, I don't know the hearts of that congregation, but what I see tells me somebody's devoted to the Lord. Amen? People see that in our lives and our hearts as well. So that just a little encouragement to making the Lord's day and worship in the house of the Lord a priority. And that includes being on time. Okay, this morning we are in the book of Genesis in chapter 5. And in chapter 5 we have what is kind of a transitory chapter. And yet I believe there's some lessons here for us to receive as we prepare our hearts to receive communion. I do know, I've mentioned this a few times, that all of the sections of the book of Genesis are broken up into generations of Adam, generations of Noah, generations of Shem, the sons of Noah. 
That is the individual's recording and account of the things that happened during their lifetime. And so now we are entering into the generations of Noah. That is, these are the things that Noah has recorded. And of course, because it's a new section, Noah goes back to the beginning. We had the generations of the heavens and the earth recorded by God and given to Adam. We had the generations of Adam recorded by Adam. And now we have the generations of Noah. Now, as we talk about this, this is his record, permanent record, recorded by the man himself of all the things that he felt was necessary to share with us about his heritage, his generations. In Hebrew, the word is toledoth. And it helps us to break down this book into sections. And we actually pick up halfway through verse 1 of chapter 5. We just saw the conclusion of the written account or the generations of Adam. And now in the second half of verse 5, we start to begin to talk about or receive the words from God's word on the generations of Noah. And with that, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for friends and church family we haven't seen in a while this morning. We're glad that they're with us. We thank you overall just that we're not alone in our walk. We're not alone in our experience of fellowship on Sundays and on Wednesdays and throughout the week. That you haven't left us alone in the sense that you've never left us nor forsaken us, but you've also provided those around us who care for us as true family in Christ. We're grateful for that today. And as we receive communion later today, uh, we don't forget that communion is a time of fellowship, koinonia, co-union, a time of remembering that we're not alone. Not only are we one with you, we're one with one another. And help us to have that on our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's read... uh, We'll just look at verses 1 and 2, or the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. It says here, When God created man, he created him in the likeness of God, and he created them, them, uh, male and female, and blessed them, and when they were created, he called them man. Now that's interesting, because that really means mankind. The word is Adam. So you see, man and woman... They were created by God, male and female, but man, Adam. She is considered part of Adam as much as Adam is Adam. So you see that word really teaches us that they were one, that they were one. But they were different. We've talked a lot about that, of course. What Noah is doing here now in this section of this book that's being compiled by Moses but recorded by Noah is he wants us to kind of go back to the beginning. He's looking at it from his perspective. Of course, Noah wasn't there in the beginning, but it has been communicated to him that his ancestors had a relationship with God, and going back to Adam, he now begins to recount for us what he knew to be true. And we see that God created Adam. We talked about this in chapter 2, chapter 1, actually. We, we, We talked about this early on. And he created man in the likeness of God, in the image of God, the likeness of God. Now, God created man with a specific purpose, and that is to reflect the spiritual image of the triune God. We are designed by God to reflect that image, the spiritual image of the triune God. Now, you know that plants, which are a creation of God, they have a body. They have a a physical body, if you will. 
Animals have a body. They even have consciousness. But man possesses not only a body, he possesses consciousness, and he has this quality referred to as the image or the likeness of God. The likeness and the image of God. Now, this image is the eternal spirit capable of fellowship with the creator. This is what differentiates us from all other creation. It sets mankind apart from all plant and animal life, also created by God. And of all creation, only man is described in this specific way. Only us. No apes, no other uh, animals that were created are described in this way. Man is a self-determinate and free-willed creation. We don't operate on instinct alone. We do have instincts. God gave us instincts. And some of them are really good. Like, you probably didn't think about blinking or breathing at all today. Your body has that ability to do that on its own. You have instinctual responses, fight or flight responses. God gave us those instinctual responses, and that's good. But he also gave us free will. Not the animals so much, us. We have a free will that is not driven purely on instinct or programming in our DNA. We're given the ability to make choices. And we prove it every time we sin. Because clearly sin is bad for us. It breaks the heart of God. It's not what God has called us to do. And we do it anyway, showing that we are a fallen creation. But that should prove to you once and for all that though some would tell you that mankind does not have free will, (laughs) clearly we do, because we sin against God. And so, mankind can choose to love God and have a special relationship with him, or he can choose to reject God and refuse his love as well. And so that puts us in a place where we can choose to belong to him or reject him, making us different than every other creation in the universe. Now, God created man to reflect the physical likeness, not just the image, but we were made in the image and likeness of God. And the likeness of the triune God, what does that mean? Well, the image refers to our spiritual nature, but the likeness refers to our bodies. You see, our bodies were specifically designed for divine fellowship. We have been given bodies and designed uniquely and wonderfully to be able to have fellowship with God. We stand upright. We are, we are, in that sense, able to also look upward toward God. Our facial expressions vary with emotional feelings, which isn't true of even the cutest puppy. You see, we sometimes will attribute emotions to animals because it seems like they, they have those emotional responses. They have instinctual responses. It's slightly different. But we have emotional responses. Animals don't cry. They don't express themselves the way we do. And though some animals sound like they're laughing, whether it be seagulls at the Jersey Shore or hyenas, they're not really laughing. We have that ability. We're made in the likeness of God. Our brains, our tongue designed for articulate speech, which again, though I've seen some YouTube videos that propose the idea that dogs can speak, usually they're just mimicking whatever they hear, and of course parrots do the same thing. It's not the same thing. We have the ability to speak and to speak articulately. Man's body was designed to be like the body that God himself would ultimately assume as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. So our likeness to God, which 
cannot be denied. Our likeness to God is so basic that the fall of mankind didn't even destroy it. We're still like God, even though we're sinful creatures, we still have a likeness and the image of God. Man remains a reasoning, moral, creative, and free-willed creature. That's who we are. And it's important to understand that that separates us from everything else God ever created. And God created man to exercise divine authority and stewardship over all creation, all created life. This included the birds, the marine life, all of the animal life. But it didn't include exercising divine authority over the rest of mankind. I've mentioned this before. We weren't told to dominate and have divine authority over our fellow man. We were called to have divine authority over creation. So, of course, in our sinful nature, mankind has done its best to dominate other members of humanity. So we see a world today torn up by wars, oppression, slavery, extortion, human trafficking, all the evils of the world that sin brought in, the sin nature is devised insane ways of harming our fellow man. You know, wars are never a good thing. I can't imagine anyone who loves Christ and loves his fellow man would think that there's ever a good war. And yet they sometimes, as the scripture tells us, there is a time for war. There's a time for peace. And, and yet, let's be honest, there's never a good war. No matter what happens, innocent people suffer. It's awful. And we see this in our world today. So I would never get out there and promote war. And yet sometimes conflicts happen and they can't be helped. But I think we should always remember that we are not called to dominate another group of people. And there are a lot of people that will mention that apart from God, but I'm going to tell you God never intended for that to be the case. So we can't blame God for what we have allowed to happen in our world. Well, he's coming again, amen, to set things right. And when he does, we'll have divine authority with him, but not over each other, over the world and the creation of God. Only God has divine authority over man. We are not called to be gods, although I think mankind has forgotten that. But he created us male and female. Imagine that, two genders. Hard to imagine a world where two genders exist anymore, right? I'm being facetious. I mean, let's be honest. He created them, proper use of that pronoun, by the way. He created them, male and female. So you can refer to men and women as them, but when you refer to an individual as them or they, I get confused. I was reading an article the other day. They were talking about a particular actor. And all of a sudden, they were using plural pronouns. And I thought to myself, what? wait, wait, I thought they were talking about an individual. We've destroyed the English language in an attempt to satisfy people who have mental problems. You realize that, right? I mean, you understand that, right? I'm not trying to be insensitive, but if you are a man and you think you're a woman or you're a woman and you think you're a man, you're delusional. You may be a wonderful person. We... we we may love you and care for you, but we're not going to lie to you and tell you you're a dog if you think you're a dog. I mean, or a cat. There are people that 10, 20 years ago used to think those things and they were treated for mental illness. I understand there's a lot of confusion. I understand there's a lot of people that are confused. May we never be confused because God made it very clear he created them, male and female. Now, a fully mature man and woman were created with the ability to reproduce. I want you to think about that. They didn't have to grow up. 
When they were created, they were fully mature. They were blessed by God with spiritual life and the ability to reproduce, and they were even commanded by God to reproduce and increase their numbers. They were commanded by God to rule over all created life. And Noah is reminding us in his account that's incorporated in the book of Genesis of these truths, though not as elaborate as the things we saw recorded in chapters 1 and 2. These truths are reiterated so we don't forget them. And I'm glad. I'm very glad because I don't think you can say it enough today that God created man and woman, male and female. He created them. And he created them with a specific purpose. To live and to be the image and the likeness of God. And God formed the man's body from the dust of the ground, the Hebrew word Adam. And so that's why he's referred to as Adam. He was formed out of the earth's element, the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen. All of those elements exist today. If you look at dirt, basically the elements are in dirt that are in us. We return to dirt. We come from dirt. And that is a a proof that even though chemistry was not necessarily a science that's talked about in the Bible, it bears true when we look backward now with scientific understanding to the word of God. The plants and animals were formed of the same materials, and there's a principle in science called the unity of physical composition. It's a scientific fact. We know that now, but it was predicted by Scripture. Scripture told us before we could have proven that. Anyway, God gave mankind life, and he did so by breathing his life into the man. We know this, again, from chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. The word for breath there is neshama in Hebrew. It's the same word for spirit, sometimes referred to as the breath of God or the ruach Elohim. In this case, animals also possess breath and a soul. We know that. They breathe, right? But the Hebrew for that word is nefesh. It's a different word. We have a different experience of life than they do. Man's breath was actually imparted to him by God directly. He breathed into the nostrils of mankind and to man and made him a living soul. It wasn't an indirect thing. It was a direct thing. That's important and an important distinction to remember as well. So this contradicts this idea of evolution. Man was created as he is without evolving. We are no different today Genetically, in a sense, we are no different today than the first man and woman. We haven't grown horns or claws, although it's interesting that men today want to try to take mankind and mess with his DNA to make us into, I guess they call it chimeras, but the idea is you're a hybrid, you're not fully human anymore. We're seeing this. I I read an article recently about, and I understand the sentiment that, that when children are born and they have a genetic anomaly, they will sometimes take a third DNA strand and and correct the DNA of that child. I understand that. I'm not even speaking on the ethics of that at the moment, but if they can do that, and maybe that's for a good purpose, maybe not, who knows? If they can have a child that has technically three parents, what, what else can happen? I think we should expect all kinds of things to happen in this world. When science gets involved in these types of things, it never ends well, does it? But this is the truth. God created man. He did not evolve. And then God formed the woman's body from the side. I like to say it this way. The very last and pinnacle of all creation was woman. Men, can I hear an amen? You can say that in church. Come on, amen. Let's be honest. So you see the word for side 
It's used 35 times in the Old Testament. It's never translated rib. Here it's translated rib because they didn't understand. And I understand why they didn't understand. But this included both flesh and bone. For we know that Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. May even imply his blood. But the life of the flesh is in the blood, so it doesn't surprise me. I don't know exactly how God created woman, but he created woman from the man. And he presented the woman to the man as the precious gift of the perfect mate. Now, man recognized that she was made of his own flesh and bones, someone that was like him, similar, not exactly the same, clearly. He, referred to as Ish in Hebrew, named her woman Isha because she came out of man. And so there are a couple of different words that are used to describe man, Ish, Adam, but we know who we're speaking of. Okay, so that's, that's Noah's summary of creation, which he felt was important to include in his account, which is separate and distinct from Adam's account. And so he sort of caught us up right from the very beginning. And it's not as if we don't appreciate the previous chapters, but we understand Noah's account went back to the beginning, and he told us again that this is how God created man. It's important that he felt it was important that he communicate that man was created by God, male and female. And again, very important. One of the things that critics do when they look at this book, the book of Genesis, they see all of these separate creation accounts and they dispute that, you know, none of them are true because they all contradict. Well, first of all, they don't contradict. Second of all, if different people are recording creation and the creative processes of God, just like the Gospels, you're going to have different accounts that overlap. In fact, if anything, it strengthens the truth that God created man and woman, male and female. Okay, so now what Noah does is he gets into his genealogy. And a lot of people don't like genealogies, and I understand why. Who begot who begot who? And, and, and many times you can, you can look at that. You're reading through the Bible in a year, and you get to like First Chronicles, and you think, oh, Lord Jesus, help me. Or you get to the book of Numbers, and you think, how am I going to get through this? Uh, this isn't a long genealogy. It's about 10 Individuals, But I want to go through, I want to show you some things uh, before we close our service. And one of the things is that in verses 3 through 5, we're introduced by Noah to Adam and his son, Seth. Look what it says in verses 3 through 5. Noah tells us that when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he, was, he named him Seth, and after Seth was born... Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters, and altogether Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Now we're told that there for a reason. These are the ancestors of Noah. He wants us to know that Seth was born in the image and the likeness of his father Adam. Now remember that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. Woman was created from Adam, therefore she is made in the image and likeness of God as well. Of course, Adam and Eve had many other children, but Noah's concerned about his ancestors, so he mentions Seth, and it's important to remember that by the time Seth or Cain or Abel or any of the other descendants were born, the likeness of God, the image of God, was still true of Adam, but so is the sin nature. So when we say the likeness, the image and the likeness, it's true that Seth was born in the image and likeness of God, but it's also true what's said here. He was made in the image and likeness of Adam. 
And I think that points something out. Just like your parents were sinners, your, their children, you, are sinners, your children are sinners, we are clearly sinners. And, and this is the premise of all gospel presentations, that we start with this truth that we are sinners. We are also made in the likeness and the image of God, but we are sinners in the likeness and image of Adam. And because of that, we need a Savior. Can I hear an amen? And that sets us up for the truth of the gospel. Uh, of all, all of Adam's descendants, by the way, except Enoch, and we'll talk to him, he's a special case, they lived many years, but they eventually died. Because remember, God told them, in the day that you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat that fruit, you're going to die. Did they die that day? No. They would die eventually. That's the, the message. It wasn't as if it was poisonous in the sense that they ate of the fruit and they immediately died. They ate of the fruit. The aging process begins. Sin takes its toll. And the universe is radically changed. And we've talked much about that over the last few weeks. But the curse of sin was in full effect in the descendants of Adam. Cain proved that when we studied that a few weeks ago. There's a scripture, and you may be familiar with it, in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 12. Paul tells us, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. You see, that, that's, that's, that's the truth. Sin came into the world through one man. Eve was a part of that. But it's the sin of Adam that dooms us to separation from God for all eternity, apart from a Savior. So this was the case for Seth as well. Now remember this, that Jesus was born in the image and likeness of his holy father, God. He was not, like Seth, born in the image and likeness of Adam. What, what does that mean? Well, he was, this is so important. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. Seth was born with that same image and likeness, but also the likeness and image of Adam, that is the sin nature. But Jesus Christ was born in the image and likeness of his father, but not in the image and likeness of Adam. That's the virgin birth. That's so important. If you understand that truth, you understand, okay, if Christ, as a man, was born in the image and likeness of his Father God, did he look different than you or I? So it's not so much about what someone looks like as to their character and their nature and who they are, their spirit. So I point that out so you understand, yes, we are sinners. We have Adam's likeness, but Christ did not. Though if Christ were here today as a man, in his risen body, we would recognize he's different. But as he walked the earth before he died and rose again, he wouldn't have looked any different at all. So there's a little bit more to this image and likeness than we may originally see. We'll move on. Well, then we are introduced to not only Adam and Seth, but Seth and his son Enosh. Not much is said, verses 6 through 8. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh, and after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters, and altogether Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. So they obviously lived quite a long time. 
Then we get to verses 9 through 11. Here we have Enosh and his son Kenan. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years. And then he died. And then we get to verse 12. We have Kenan and his son Mahalalel. When Kenan lived, had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Kenan lived 910 years and then he died. So you see a repetitive cycle here. You have individuals living a long time but ultimately dying. Why? Because they were born in the image and the likeness of Adam. They had the sin nature. Sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's, that's why you need a Savior. <laughs> because we all die. We need to be saved from our sins. And so we get to verse 15. Uh, verses 15 through 17. Mahalalel had lived 65 years. He became the father of Jared. Jared, you picked a good day to visit with us today. Your name is being mentioned. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years and then he died. Glad I don't have to say that name, Mahalalel, again. And then we get to Jared and his son Enoch. And this is where it starts to get interesting. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Jared lived 962 years. It's a long time. And then he died. Okay, that gets us to verse 21. Now, Enoch and his son Methuselah. This is, this is when it becomes important to take notes, or at least take notice. In verses 21 through 23, we'll start there. We learn that when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. You've probably heard that name before. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Now, that is a very mysterious verse. What does that mean? I don't think we really understand, but one thing is clear. He was no longer around. Now, the New Testament gives us some understanding, which we'll get to in a minute, but let's start with this. He was born 622 years after the creation of Adam. Take a moment. So Adam's still alive, right? He was born, that is Enoch, 622 years after the creation of Adam. Adam was still alive, actually, for the first 308 years of his life. That's a lot of overlap, right? To transfer information about what happened in the beginning. It's not as if it's that game of telephone. Have you ever done that? We were kids. We used to do that. We'd line up at school, and they'd have these chairs. Everyone would sit. They'd have all the kids in a line, and the teacher would tell a secret to the first kid, right? And then they would tell, the kids love secrets. And then they would whisper in the kid's ear the secret. By the time it got to the end, the last person, they would say, well, what did you hear? And it didn't even resemble what the teacher told the first kid. People will look at the biblical account and say, well, how can you trust 
the biblical account. It's a game of telephone. Well, not when you have all of this overlap of hundreds of years. Has someone ever told the story you told them and they get it wrong? But you're there. So you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. It wasn't him. It was her. You know, you correct it. So this gives credibility to the book of Genesis because there was accountability and there was overlap, quite a bit actually. But Enoch's special relationship with God seems to have begun when his son was born. And this may be the result of a prophetic revelation concerning his son, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But God took Enoch away. What does that mean? Well, he was Adam's seventh son, descendant, taken by God 69 years before Noah was born. Remember, this is Noah recording this, and he was taken away 69 years before Noah's birth. He was accepted by God by faith, and he never saw death. Now, how do I know that? Well, I have to go to the New Testament, I have to go to the book of Hebrews, and I have to look and see what the scripture tells me about Enoch. Not much is said in the book of Genesis, just that God took him away. But this understanding from the scriptures is given to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, where the writer is talking about faith. And he says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. So now we have a little bit more information. He could not be found because God had taken him away. But for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Does that sound like something we're waiting for as Christians? I guess if you're pre-tribulationist, pre-millennialist, dispensationalist like myself, you might be waiting for an event called the rapture of the church. And that is a moment... Paul talks about. There is arguments about when it will happen, but I don't think anyone can argue if it will happen. And it will happen, and when it does, those who are in Christ, those who are dead in Christ, will be raised first. And we who are alive will be caught up in the air to meet them, and forever will be with the Lord. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So there is an event that's coming where people will be taken away And Enoch is a type, is a symbol of that moment, that that event that has not yet happened. I often wonder, would it be on a Sunday when I'm preaching? I don't know how I would respond. Would I be like, well, I really wanted to finish that message? No, probably not. I'd probably be very excited about not being here and being with Christ. Amen? But at any moment, God can choose to remove his people from this wicked world. I personally don't think now would be a good time. And I'm going to tell you why. The world is so wicked, it needs us. The world needs the message we have. If you're just trying to get out of here, you're like you're an escapist. And I understand why you might feel that way, especially if you have young children. You're like, we need to get out of here. You know, we're homeschooling our kids, but the world is a wicked place. I understand, but remember that God has a purpose for us. And that purpose is to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as long as we can preach that message, it's probably a good thing we're still here. Not selfishly, but selflessly, I'm glad we're still here. Because can you imagine where the world would be right now without us? That is, spirit-filled believers in Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God. But that day is coming. When God deems it to be the right day, it'll happen. And when it does, God help those who are left behind. But Enoch becomes a type of this event, kind of symbolically teaches that that truth will come to pass. But he was accepted by God by faith. He never saw death. Why? I don't know. How? I have no idea. I just know it to be so. 
He's similar to another prophet or individual in the Bible named Elijah. Elijah was taken away by God as well. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, Enoch prophesied God's judgment about midway between Adam and Abraham, while Elijah prophesied God's judgment midway between Abraham and Christ. So they're strategically placed, one between Adam and Abraham, and one between Abraham and Christ. And they're both taken by God. Now, we have a lot more information as to how Elijah was raptured, if you will, or taken up into heaven. Not so much about Enoch. But the scripture in Malachi, the prophet Malachi records, and in Matthew's gospel in chapter 17, we are told that Elijah will return to earth to preach again. In fact, people thought Christ might be Elijah. They thought John the Baptist might be Elijah. And in a sense, Jesus said he he is an Elijah, but not the Elijah, who will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That will happen. In fact, the Jews, when they celebrate the feast of Passover, they set out an empty chair. And that empty chair is for the prophet Elijah, because they know Elijah will come again. So Elijah will come again as an anticipation of the Messiah. And though Jews today, many Jews, uh, reject Jesus as Messiah, uh, they are still looking for Messiah. And when he comes, the Bible tells us, they'll weep as one weeps for their only son. They'll mourn for him that they have pierced. And so we know the day will come when the Jews' eyes will be opened, as in general, that's not the case today, although there are many Jews who have come to know Christ. But as a nation, as a people, they have not. Anyway, Enoch may return with Elijah as one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. I personally think that's probably the case in chapter 11, but regardless, Enoch and Elijah never died. Now, Enoch was also quoted in another book, in the book of Jude. And there are at least three apocryphal books. That means books that aren't really scripture, but they're apocryphal books. They're attributed to Enoch. They may have been preserved, uh, and they may preserve certain elements of his prophecies. But these books we know were actually written shortly before the time of Christ. So in a sense, they're forgeries. They're not really scripture, but they're very popular. A lot of people read them. Uh, The books read very much like Greek or Roman mythology. I believe there's some truth in there. I also believe a lot of what's recorded there is not true. Regardless, though, if you look at the book of Jude and uh, you look at verses 14 through 15, you have at least this recorded. In Jude, verses 14 and 15, it says, Enoch, the seventh son, or seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, that is the wicked men of the last days. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done and in the ungodly way. And of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So that's a prophecy from this Enoch recorded, transferred down to us, maybe recorded in the books of Enoch that are, that are written, but regardless, we know that much seems to be the word of God and true because it's communicated to us through the book of Jude. So what Enoch clearly did was prophesy things that would happen in the last days. Interesting. I think it's very interesting. So this Enoch is an interesting person with an interesting history and worth at least a little study. So now we get to Methuselah and Lamech, and it also continues to get a little interesting because in verses 25 through 27, we read this. 
When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. As far as we know, that is the oldest man that ever lived. Clearly, of all these descendants of Adam, he lived the longest. One came close, 962, but 969, that's a long time, isn't it? So here's what we know about Methuselah and his son, Lamech. Methuselah, the oldest of Noah's ancestors, is the only ancestor, think about this, the only ancestor to outlive his son. I'll explain. He lived so long, and even though his son, Lamech, lived a long time, he actually outlived his son, which is incredible when you think about it. Now, of course, you have to exclude Enoch, because Enoch didn't really die. But Lamech and Enoch are both named after older descendants of Cain, which we talked about in chapter 4. But only these two died or were taken while their fathers were alive. So generally, a father would live, have sons, and we're recording here their sons outlived them, but not in this case. And by the way, both of them handed down fragments of their prophecies. We already looked at Enoch's prophecy recorded in Jude in verse 29. In just a little bit, we'll see a fragment of the prophecy of Lamech. Uh, excuse me, actually a prophecy of uh, Methuselah, I believe. No, Lamech. Now, Methuselah, this is important. Methuselah is a direct link, a direct link between the Garden of Eden and the post-flood world. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that game of telephone I was talking about, where one person tells one person, and they tell somebody, and they tell somebody, and then the message is completely jumbled? Think about this. Adam was still alive for the first 243 years of Methuselah's life. That's 243 years to get the story straight. Methuselah was still alive for the first 98 years of Shem's life, who lived, was born before the flood, lived through the flood, and lived after the flood. That's important because that information was translated through one person from Adam to Shem. Incidentally, Shem was still alive when Abraham was. So this is not a story that was told through thousands of generations. Adam, Methuselah, Methuselah, Shem, Shem, Abraham, if you will. That, that, that's, that's important because people will criticize the Bible and tell you you can't trust that history. I will trust any history, really, that's communicated like this, faithfully. The history we take for granted has been communicated through far more people. So you can trust the history of the Bible. Amen? That's the point. That's really the point. Okay. The lifespans of Noah's ancestors, you may be thinking, well, Pastor Tim, that sounds a little ridiculous. How could people live so long? Well, all of the lifespans in these descendants or ancestors uh, average 912 years. And that even includes Enoch. And he was taken out pretty early at 365 See, most ancient cultures had traditions of early man's great longevity. That is history outside the Bible. This includes Babylonians, Persians, Egyptians, Hindus, and Greeks. In fact, this is fascinating. Archaeologically speaking, a list was excavated near Babel that listed 10, notice 10, such kings of great ages. The Bible in chapter 5, the book of Genesis, records 10 
leaders who lived a long time. So there's similarities between secular history and biblical spiritual history. Of course, this was due to one simple fact. There was, or there were, superior environmental conditions before the flood. Uh, there was a water vapor level, uh, a layer around the earth, which shielded the neutrinos and other dangerous particles that actually accelerate aging. Uh, you had the really more of an ideal environment for life to exist. After the flood, everything changed. And interestingly enough, so did the lifespans. You also have genetic purity. You have a lot of contributing factors. And I think it's fair to say that when the Bible says that Methuselah lived to be 969 years old, he lived to be 969 years old. I'm not going to even debate that point. Why would I think anything else when this narrative can be trusted? Surely it can. It's the word of God. Amen? Okay, we'll wrap this up in just a minute. One of the things that's fascinating is that Methuselah died in the very same year that God flooded the earth. His name in Hebrew, or recorded here in Hebrew, means when he dies, judgment. That's what his name means. When he dies, judgment. It can also be translated, his death shall bring judgment. So that means there was a prophecy somewhere that said when Methuselah dies, judgment's coming. Now, can you imagine when he was a baby if he had a cold? People probably were very concerned about the life of Methuselah, but isn't it interesting The Lord allowed him to live 969 years, the longest ever recorded. I believe his father, Enoch, may have prophesied. He was a prophet. God's coming judgment at his birth. But this testifies. Brothers and sisters, think about it. To just how long-suffering God is in bringing judgment. The prophecy said when he died, the judgment would come. And this was the longest living man. You see how long-suffering God is? He could have lived to have been 30, but he lived to be 969 years. Sends a message. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? He gave man the maximum amount of time. He could, really. Anyway, then we get to Lamech and his son Noah, and in verse 28 it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son, and he named him Noah. And he said, He will comfort us, because the word Noah sounds like the word in Hebrew for comfort. It doesn't mean comfort, but it sounds like the word for comfort. And he said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And after Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Lamech lived 770 years, and then he died. And so Lamech prophesied God's promised rest and comfort from Noah at his birth. In fact, his name means rest. The memory of God's curse, which was on the ground because of sin, was still fresh in their minds. And so Lamech was one of the holy prophets that promised the restoration of mankind. So you have Enoch and Lamech. Okay. Finally, we're told in verse 32 that when, after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that sets us up for the next chapter, which we'll get to next week. Now, Adam's nine descendants were not necessarily the firstborn. They're only mentioned because they are the ancestors of Noah. And Noah had siblings, other siblings, and and their families were ungodly. They perished in the flood. I believe he had other sons and daughters that were ungodly, and so they perished in the flood. Only three of his sons chose to go with him in the ark. 
Japheth was the elder, Ham was the youngest. This means that Shem, the ancestor of Christ, was somewhere in the middle. But don't think that Noah only had three sons. It's just that these three are mentioned because they were faithful to God. Imagine how, things, how badly things must have gotten that you're down to Noah and his three sons and their wives of righteous people, which we'll see next week. Well, of all the personal names listed before the confusion of languages, which took place later, they're, they're all quite similar. They seem to have a distinctive meaning in the Hebrew language, and this implies that the original language, perhaps, of mankind was in fact Hebrew. It wouldn't surprise me that the original language of mankind was Hebrew, but then later God changes the languages, and he adds new languages and confuses the language. But because of the recording here, one has to assume that perhaps the original language was Hebrew. I I think that makes a lot of sense, but I don't know that for a fact. Finally, I want to close with this thought, and I don't want to make too much of this, because some, some days I look at this and I think, oh, that's so cool, and then other days I look at it and I say, yeah, maybe. But there may be a hidden message in the original roots, Now I want to stress this. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the original roots of Hebrew uh, and the names of Noah's ten ancestors, they have meaning. Each of these words have a meaning. Like, for example, Noah, we mentioned rest, right? Methuselah, his his death shall bring, or he will bring judgment, right? Uh, So if we put those names of all of the different ancestors together in a line, this is is what you get. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan may mean sorrow. It's hard to translate that one. Mahalel means the blessed God. That's pretty clear. Jared is from the verb, which means shall come down. So... That's a verb. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah may mean his death shall bring, or his death shall bring judgment. Lamech suggests despairing. Noah means rest, even though it sounds like the word for comfort. Now, adding a couple of prepositions, this is what you get. Just a thought. Just something to think about this week. I don't want anybody, like, thinking that this is necessarily, you know, as important as the gospel, but it may be a hidden message of the gospel. For if you put those words together, this is what you get. You ready? Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It's still the gospel. Whether that's the intention or not, I don't know. But it's fascinating to me that there may be a hidden message of the gospel right in a genealogy that most people would breeze right past. Just going to show us that all the word of God is God-breathed and has a purpose in pointing us to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you as we prepare our hearts now to receive communion. May that gospel message be in our hearts and may, may we be reminded in this dark world that there is a purpose. There was a purpose for Enoch being taken out And there was a purpose in Methuselah living as long as he did. And there's a purpose for us to continue to be here in this world, to preach the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all those that need to hear it. Our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, give us the opportunity in love to share the truth of the gospel that all may hear and know that Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, Send it into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
and that we as the living will be judged righteous because to as many as received him, to those that believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And so, Lord, we love being your children. As we receive communion now, may we celebrate that truth together as one family in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.